sign. It's Buddy here. I just got your new pages. You like them? Like is for pictures. These are to love. This job is not to be believed. And I cannot believe my luck. I'm at the literary prime of my life. And I'm about to have the time of my life. Unless I'm easily deceived. The buddy doesn't tend to sugarcoat his comments. He's all right. All bark, no bite. I've always longed for a chance to be watching a book of my own on the screen. To look up and see stone on the screen would be better than fine. Sit with my wife in a crowd as the credits are shown on the screen. In a frame all alone on the screen. It's a screenplay by stone. We're making movies out of books. They say that Buddy wrote the book. I can't depend on him to give me some lip. But you can trust a guy who shoots from the hip Out here where nothing's how it looks It's hard to disregard a candid stand-up guy Who skips the double talk and lets you know exactly what he's thinking about you And I can beat the odds and meet his demands Though I'm a stranger in the strangest of lands This mad adventure I've begun Is not like anything I know It's gonna be a lot of work and lots of Hello and welcome to Broadway Radio's This Week on Broadway for Sunday, March 14th, 2021. My name is James Marino, and in the broadcast today we have Peter Felicia and Michael Portantier. Peter is a playwright, journalist, and historian with a number of books. His columns appear at Encore Magazine, Masterworks Broadway, Broadway Select, and many other places. Good afternoon, good evening, <laughs> good morning, Peter. <laughs> Man for all seasons. Yes, uh, hello. <laughs> yes, we're recording on a Saturday evening versus our Sunday morning, which actually Michael Portantier brought up as a better thing because we uh, skip to daylight saving tomorrow. Mm. Uh, mm. So we would be up an hour earlier. Oh, yeah. And uh, Peter, I just got the uh, new ep- the new issue of Encore magazine in the mail. Oh, good. Yeah, did you get yours with the Lion King on the cover? Yes, yes, indeed. Uh, certainly did. Uh, I, if I say so myself, it's a very handsome magazine. What's your column this month? Well, um, I did one on places you could visit uh, that were in musicals based on my trip to Paris and seeing Sunday in the Park with George on a Saturday night. And then uh-huh. I woke up on Sunday morning with nothing to do. So I went to the park. Um, and uh, <laughs> then I also had a, a profile on Charles Kirsch, that 13-year-old boy I speak about from oh, time yeah. to time. Mm-hmm. So uh, I tell you all about him. And um, so, uh, so those are the two that I have in this issue. Great. Also with us is Michael Portantier. Michael is a theater reviewer and essayist. He's the founder and editor of CastAlbumReviews.com. He's also a theatrical photographer whose photos have appeared in the New York Times and other major publications. You could see his photography work at FileSpotPhoto.com. Good evening, Michael. <laughs> Good evening. Good evening. <laughs> so we have a very special guest with us. David Zippel is with us. Broadway fans know David from, you know, his Tony Award turn in uh, City of Angels. He also uh, got a, a Drama Desk Award. Uh, if, 
film fans know him from Hercules and Mulan, where uh, he had Golden Globes and the Swan Princess and uh, all sorts of other things. He's worked with Cy Coleman, Marvin Hamlish, Phil Collins, Alan Menken, Angela Lloyd Webber. Oh, yeah, there's that Angela Lloyd Webber thing coming up. That's mm-hmm. also coming up, too. <laughs> David, thank you for joining us. Absolutely a pleasure to be here to talk to you guys. So wonderful to have you with us uh, talking on a Saturday evening. We really appreciate you coming to us from uh, Los Angeles, right? Actually, from Palm Springs. Ah. Palm Springs. Okay. Even Excellent. nicer. Even nicer than LA. <laughs> extra hour would have been even harder on me tomorrow. Yes, Thank yes, you it for would have. moving it to Saturday. <laughs> yes, of course. I'm going to ask a, a question that is second cousin to the famous question, what comes first, music of the lyrics, because I'm asking it in a very different way. I remember many, many, many moons ago, somebody gave me one of your lyrics for a song um, that essentially was very much uh, in the style of um, who wants to live in New York, that type of thing. And I looked at it and I said, whoa, this scans perfectly with hurry. It's lovely up here. <laughs> and um, the, the gentleman who showed it to me said, yeah, yeah. He told me that that was actually his model. So do you do that a lot, a little? Did you used to do it? Do you not do it anymore? Take a, an existing song when you write a lyric first and put it to that? that that's interesting because um, Betty and Adolf told me that when they did um, on the song from um, uh, On the Town, um, they used uh, the, the song. The, so the song on the town is, um, oh man, Lenny, it, it's it's carried away. And they used, um, if my heart gets in your hair, you mustn't kick it around as a ball. Right. Yeah. <laughs> uh, no, I, I don't tend to do that. Um, there are times when I've, I've been inspired by other songs. Um, so I had written songs. And I said, can we write a song in that mode? Uh, that you know, that style really interests me, but I've never really used um, another lyric as the, the starting off point. So, David, uh, you uh, hail from eastern Pennsylvania, uh, and I was read, and uh, I was reading that uh, that your mom was a Broadway performer. Is this true? No, not at all. No, That's, not at all. Agree that my mom was a, a Southern belle, but uh, my my folks. Um, did an amateur production of Guys and Dolls when I was a kid and far, far from being on Broadway. And I was blown away. I loved it so much. My mom was a hotbox girl. Wow. <laughs> of course my she was. Dad, she was very attractive. And my dad uh, played Arvide and they made him Sarah Brown's brother because he, my dad was too young to play uh. father. Um, but I, Tams Whitmark sent the sides that were all bound in leather mm-hmm. and I rehearsed her lines with her a lot. I was, I think like seven years old and, uh, and I still remember them to this day, Adelaide. Um, anybody have any, anybody see an earring around here? Uh, Adelaide. Uh, I was all dated up with society max and he breaks it on account of one of your dopey old crap games. <laughs> she only had two lines. <laughs> Well, you know, David, I kind of wish I had swiped one of those sides uh, Tams, from Tams Whitmark for one of the shows I had done because people now probably would not believe that that's what people used to work from. That's true. <laughs> and I think she had, the, her second line was, honestly, Adelaide, I don't know how you put up with it. <laughs> uh, and so really at that point in time, that's when it was the leadings that you said, gee, I want to be a part of this. It's true. It's true. And my dad had been a professional basketball player 
And what um, team? I, uh, for the it was the Eastern Seaboard League, mm-hmm. and I don't really know the t- the Wilkes Barre Barons was the name of the team. Uh-huh. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> and um, he. And he had been a I, Eastern Pennsylvania is where Lafayette College is, which is mm-hmm. um, the little uh, great little college that he went to and, and ultimately became uh, a trustee for. But while he was there, he became one of the great basketball stars before he was a pro. And the entire town would come out to see him play basketball. So everybody expected me to be a basketball player. And I, I was fairly tall as a kid, but I had next to no coordination <laughs> whatsoever. But I tried really hard. My dad never asked me to be one, but I just sensed that he would like it. Everybody around me sensed it. So I would, I was on the Jewish community center peewee league and the gym was also where the theater was. Ah. And so I would sit there on the bench, hoping not to be put in and watching them setting up the shows that they did and wishing I could be a part of that. And that's really how it all began for me. So um, were there, original cast albums that had great lyricists that influenced you and said, uh, gee, I'd like to do that, or I can do that. Absolutely. It was, it was guys and dolls and gypsy that, uh-huh. that I listened to incessantly. Um, but of course the Rogers and Hammerstein canon as well. And, uh, um, and as a kid, I, I, when I was probably around the same age, there was a place in Lambertville, New Jersey, which is on oh, the yeah, other side sure. of the river from yeah. County Playhouse. Yeah. And they had a tent um, sure. season, St. John Terrell's right. uh, music mm-hmm. circuit, Lambertville, New Jersey. And my parents took me to see the music man and I couldn't believe it. It was, it was an out of body experience. I was so loving it. And uh, the, in the round, as you know, they're very limited set options, but um, street lights flew in and suddenly we were somewhere else. And I, I just couldn't believe theater magic just took me away. I thought it was the greatest thing I'd ever seen. And I, I found recently when we, my dad uh, passed away and we were unpacking the house and I found the playbill from then. And, and, uh, uh, it was, I, I didn't really know anyone in the cast, but Dom DeLuise was Marcellus. <laughs> wow. That is, uh, you know, it, you, you, you find out, uh, you, ever, you know, Peter's got a great story about when he, he saw, uh, a, was it a, a young Al Pacino up at Hasty? Was that? Oh, um, at Brandeis, in fact. Um, yeah. Um, he did a guest thing. Uh, it's so wonderful to see people when they're just starting out and uh, saying, wow, I think that person's going to amount to something. And um, I have to say that I knew you were going to amount to something when I went to a backers audition of Going Hollywood, um, the musical version of Once in a Lifetime. And ironically enough, this just came up yesterday because I was talking to Josh Ellis. Do you remember Josh? Not very well. Okay. So, Josh, uh, we were talking about albums we wish you gotten recorded and he brought up going hollywood he said wow. i wish there were an album of that show he said i saw it seven times in back auditions and um loved it i i saw it with karen morrow you know and he mentioned other people who um did various um presentations of it and um i know a lot of people are very sorry that never really happened you know i haven't completely given up one never does <laughs> but yeah, it's indeed. one of the it's on my bucket list and and one of the great disappointments that it had never got a full production because I really believe in it. And it's because it's a period piece, it's timeless. So if anyone listening wants to produce uh, what I think is a really terrific classic style musical, uh, 
call me or call Peter. (laughs) (laughs) We'll find you. I'll find me. Yeah. Yeah, That's uh, so. uh, So, of course, you know, I mean, whenever you read a biography of any famous person involved with the theater, there is always a, uh, a show that doesn't happen or doesn't last very long and all that before real success happens. But the question becomes, I remember when you gave your Tony acceptance speech, um, I remember I was in the Lundfontaine theater and, um, and you said, thanks, Cy, for giving me the shot. And um, so how did you get the job? I mean, obviously, there were a lot of people who would want to work with Cy Coleman. And for him to say, yes, it will be you must have been amazing. It was life changing. And, and I realized that the opportunity was life changing. I was hoping that I would uh, rise to the occasion. Um, it was quite uh, a miraculous thing. And it, it, it took place over a long period of time. Um, as 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 James mentioned, I went to law school, and while I was in law school, one of my uh, classmates, who became one of my best friends, was a young, uh, soon-to-be lawyer named Russell De Silva, and his dad was Al De Silva, who was a very prominent uh, theater attorney. And Russell thought I was talented because I was writing at that time and told his dad about me and his dad and his mom became advocates of mine. And one of their clients was, was Cy Coleman. And they were talking about him during those years. And Cy was sort of like, yeah, yeah, yeah. That's very interesting. He didn't seem, uh, and and Cy was a guy who liked things to be his idea. But during uh, the following years, when I came to New York, one of the first things I did was a I started my career with a career retrospective. I did this review called It's Better With a Band, mm-hmm. uh, which just had songs I had written. And um, it was sort of inspired by Starting Here, Starting Now. Mm-hmm. And uh, although several years later, to, to the idea of just putting, uh, or frankly, Frank, for that matter. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> um, and Cy uh, came to see it, and I think he liked it. But Judy Gordon, um, who's his writing partner, a producing partner on Barnum. Also, actually, she saw Barbara Cook, who did my first work in New York Hmm. and liked what I did. And she was telling Cy about me. And then there was a a critic at the time, um, God, James O'Brien. Anyway, it was O'Brien, but I can't remember his first name. Jack O'Brien? Jack O'Brien. No, no, Jack O'Brien's the the director. No, but there's uh, a, there was a wasn't there a, Peter? Wasn't there a that doesn't Peter? ring a bell with me. Uh, that does ring a bell with me. So maybe it was Jack O'Brien. <laughs> his wife Vonnie, and they were also enthusiastic. And I didn't know them, but they were telling Cy about it. And I think Cy kind of felt like there was a conspiracy to, <laughs> because people kept telling him that they should he should write with me. And so it took several years later, but the phone rang one day and he called me up and asked if I would be meet with him. And I, of course, was thrilled because he was one of my heroes. And uh, he talked to me about uh, a musical about cross-dressing men, drag performers. <laughs> and I thought, man, that, as I was listening to this, it, this has been done. I mean, Lacage was quite a success. And it didn't seem like there was room in the canon for another one on Broadway. But he was very enthusiastic about it. And he asked me if I would meet with him. And I, I certainly wasn't going to turn him down. So I met with him two or three times about it. And then I said, Cy, when, I was hoping that you were going to call me about what was then called death is for suckers. Mm-hmm. Um, I had read about it in a column that the New York times ran regularly called the news of the Rialto. And it used mm-hmm. to talk about what people were working on. It was very uh, non-critical. It, it was just news. And they, it, it, it talked about a show, a, a detective story 
style Mickey Spillane musical with a jazz score that Cy Coleman and another hero of mine, Larry Gilbart, were writing. And I thought, man, uh, that would be the job for me because I was a huge fan of Lambert Hendricks and Ross, and I was a jazz fan, and I just felt like it would use my abilities really well. So I said, what about that show? And he said, well, we're talking to a lot of big shots for that. But uh, (laughs) And about, I guess, three months later, they called me up and said, uh, I talked to Larry, and we'd like to give you a chance. Uh, would you be willing to write three songs? We'll work together after three songs. We'll stop and we'll look and see how we feel. And we'll decide together whether we're all going to move forward, which was a very polite way of saying whether or not I was fired. Mm-hmm. And I said, absolutely. And of course, and uh, that was the beginning. Well, in fact, um, you know, Jerry Herman talks about that weekend when he had to write four songs for Dolly and um, three of them wound up in the show and one didn't. So what was your uh, scorecard? Uh, did all three wind up in the show? None? One? What? I'll tell you, it, it, I, the first thing we did um, there at that point, all Larry had done was an outline for the detective story. So Cy wrote a melody, which I thought was really terrific. And he told, we decided it would go where it would go. It would go. There was a missing girl. And so we wrote, I wrote lost and found. And I, they, so it was, that was music first. And Cy and Larry were very enthusiastic, which gave me a lot of confidence that this may work out. Okay. And, well, uh, wait, I have a question about that then. Sure. I mean, of course, there is the word Mallory in the song that rhymes with salary. Um, had you um, been given a script where there was a Mallory in it or was it, it was a, a case? Mallory Kingsley? Absolutely. She was, Absolutely. she was established. She was wow. established. Uh huh. Okay. The, I found the rhyme as opposed to creating the rhyme. Right. And- <laughs> yeah. Steve Sondheim was really offended when I said to him uh, about Follies. They say that anybody, Buddy Blair, did, did anybody come? Yeah, he was furious that I uh, even brought that up. So that's why I ask. <laughs> and thank you for being more gracious about it. Well, there's another uh, great Sondheim name lyric too. And, and I even named her Desiree, but there's. There's another one in that show as well that I can't think of at the moment. Oh, uh, Petra, etc. Yeah, I mean, they're, Armfelt, they're, Armfelt, 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 yeah. right? Yeah, right. He's got a million of them. Uh, but no. I think in those cases, the character names came first for sure as well. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Well, City of Angels is such a terrific score overall, but I have to say one song in particular, it just seems like it's had such a wonderful life, and that's You're Nothing Without Me. Uh, last summer, the, uh, tw- summer 2019, uh, David was there. We were at Jim Crusoe's cast party, and uh, two friends of mine got up, and because David was in the audience, <laughs> they sang, uh, they did You're Nothing Without Me, and they're identical twins, the Drinkwater brothers. So that was kind of amazing. Uh-huh. And also, <laughs> David, did you see, I hope you saw uh, this recent video that Bryce Pinkham and Nikita Burstein did of, of the song? I have not seen that. Oh, we'll have to send it to you. It is so great. They did it in black and white split screen and, uh, and, you know, typical Bryce Pinkham. He's, he's, he's kind of a crazy cut up. He's sitting in a bubble bath. (laughs) (laughs) It's really just wonderful. We'll send it to you. Um, Larry Gelbart told me that when he started, um, he didn't have the, um, 
the two, uh, the, the writer and um, the uh, fictional character that uh, he said, and I, I, I was writing uh, Death is for Suckers and it, he said, it wasn't holding me. I just had to do something very different. Were you in it before he made the decision to have uh, the writer and the character? Absolutely. And that, that was part of um, our experience. So I, I wrote that first song and then um, Cy called me up and asked me to meet with him. He wanted to write the second one. So uh, obviously so did I, and he <laughs> played a ballad for me and it was, I just knew that if I could set this lyric uh, to this gorgeous melody that I will have written the Cy Coleman standard and gotten the job. <laughs> so uh, I worked really hard. And, and while I was in the room with him, I uh, I came up with a title, which I threw out at him, the way it sat on the music, uh, with every breath I take. And so I said, that's perfect. And, and then he was going away on a vacation. And so I wrote a lyric the next day, and I liked it. But then I thought, God, is this the right lyric? Uh, so I wrote 12 others. <laughs> and some were different versions of the same thing. Some were completely different, all with the same title. And, uh, and I, I think maybe a couple w- with a different title and I brought them to size office about 10 days later and he was tanned and relaxed. And he, I, I put the one I wrote first on top, uh, and, uh, which is still the one I like the best. And he sat down at the piano and he just played it down and sang it straight through. And he said, this is great. Let's call Larry and play it for him. So while he was going to get the phone number and dial Larry, I slipped the other 12 versions away <laughs> and we never looked back. There was never a moment where we went stopped after three. That was the end. We just went forward. But as Peter said, um, Cy uh, and I were doing something that Larry thought was very original, a, a jazz musical for um, Broadway. But Larry felt like I'm just doing a spoof of a detective story. That's like a, a Saturday night live sketch. I, I, I want this to be uh, to have more dimension than that. And also to be more interesting. And, and as Peter said, it wasn't holding for Larry. So he said, give me, I, I think I, we wrote one more song for the detective story. I think everybody's got to be somewhere. And then so I said, uh, Larry said, I'm going to work on this, the script for a little while. I need a couple of months so you know, if you want to do another song for the detectives part of the show, be my guest. Uh, but uh, every, I put everything else on hold. So, and and we didn't know w- what he was going to come up with. And about two and a half months later, uh, Cy and I flew out to Los Angeles. Larry lived in Beverly Hills, and we sat down and he said, "Pitch the idea of the two simultaneous stories." So together, we started at the beginning with just the idea, and we outlined the entire show scene for scene from the beginning to the end. And then we went back. This took, this is about a week and a half over a course of a week and a half. And then we spotted all the songs together. So all three of us worked as a team to come out with the outline and pretty much the show that you see, or the, that came to Broadway was that outline very little changed in the course of time after that. And it was really fun to, to Larry and I would talk, talk on the phone. I would work on with, a sigh in New York. And then you'd hear in the, in those days, the whirring of the fax machine. And then all <laughs> of a sudden these pages would arrive with fantastic uh, scenes and great jokes. And uh, it was, it was just a heady, wonderful experience. And, and I was um, constantly aware that uh, this was a pinch yourself moment for me because this is what I dreamed of. And the fact that it turned out to be good is even better. 
Sure. You know, what's been interesting to me over the years is that uh, Hollywood and Broadway don't always work well together, but City of Angels had the perfect combination. And uh, it, did you guys have to find a balance there, or did it just come naturally? I think it came naturally. Um, and, of course, Larry was a creature of both worlds. I saw I had some film experience as well, but mm-hmm. Larry in particular. And, it, and Larry was telling the story. So uh, he, and he had a very strong point of view about Hollywood, which comes through uh, in the show. Hmm. Uh, Having uh, two stories side by side, uh, uh, did the producers say, Hey, can we afford that? Or, you know, Roger Berlind was uh, producing. Mm -hmm. Well, they came in after we'd completed the show. Um, Uh early and they kind of liked what they saw um it was uh, it was an interesting experience it, there were i think there were more at that time and i'm not sure whether this is we still hold the record but there were more different sets and scene changes in our show than had ever been in a show on broadway at that really time. uh what was uh, i uh, i'm going to preface this by saying that I have never heard a Broadway orchestra that wasn't incredible, but the City of Angels Orchestra was that was that plus one. Uh, it was just I can't disagree. <laughs> it was just absolutely unbelievable. Do you do you recall how many pieces were in there? Did did they have to fight for extra pieces? It it just sounded like double the size of every other orchestra. Well, I I think there were on the the tour there were only like. 15 on Broadway, there were 19, but it did sound like more. I agree with you, James, but that was Billy Byers who was just Mm. the dream orchestrator. And he worked with the, uh, with um, John Miller to select the musicians. Mm -hmm. And Mm -hmm. he called it his wet dream orchestra Mm. because it was such an amazing group of people. And Cy was of course blown away by the pianist, uh, uh, Lee Musiker, he was his. It, it, so I said, "You're my second favorite pianist." Reserving the <laughs> <laughs> on a somewhat related note, uh, you you mentioned earlier, it's better with a band. I wanted to confirm: was it r- written specifically for Barbara Cook? It was. It absolutely yeah. was. And was it written specifically for her her Carnegie Hall concert? Because I know Carnegie Hall is mentioned in the lyric. I don't know if that was an afterthought or. Absolutely. It was a labor of love for Barbara and for the Carnegie Hall concert. Uh, and yes, it's such a great song with Wally Harper. We're going to include it in the in the podcast. So I just wanted to confirm the, 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 the facts of it. Well, that's there's a bit of a story there as well. Um, I was a law student and uh, dreaming of being a lyricist on Broadway. I'm sure everyone at Harvard Law School was thinking the same thing I was thinking. <laughs> And Barbara Cook was performing at the Copley Plaza Hotel in in downtown Boston. So I went to see her and she was magnificent. And in this little room, it was called um, the carousel room. And it had a a turntable on it. And the audience was in the round. And she was like on on a hot plate. And she would slowly rotate like a lazy Susan. And every two or three minutes she would pass your table as she revolved. It was very odd, 
but she was brilliant and it wasn't terribly crowded. It was a weekday and uh, it was, I was blown away and, and it was right around my birthday and my parents sent me a little gift. And so I thought I'm going to go back. So the following week I went and she was equally magnificent. And as I, I had to wait, the show was over and I wait and paid my check and uh, I'm walking through the lobby of the hotel to leave. And there was Barbara cook and Wally Harper standing there. And so I had to walk by him to leave. So I said, hello, and they couldn't have been nicer. And I told them how much I love the show. And at that very moment, and I'm dropping a name, excuse me, but Eva Marie Saint walked into the lobby. She was doing a play there and started talking to Barbara. So there I was talking to Wally Harper. And uh, I told him how much I liked his music and his partner's lyrics. And he said, oh, well, we don't write together anymore. And I thought, if that isn't the bell of opportunity. <laughs> So I said, well, I'm a law student currently, but you know, really what I want to be is a lyricist. And uh, he said, oh, man, a good lyricist is really hard to find. <laughs> and I said, well, I've been working on a lot of different uh, songs. He said, uh, you know, uh, I'd be happy to show you my work. And he said, well, why don't you come have breakfast with Barbara and me tomorrow? So I thought, oh, my God. Oh, great. So uh, I told him I had an exam in the morning and they said, well, they slept late. And I came into Boston and we had breakfast. And, and he said, when you come to New York, um, you know, this summer we'll write. So I came to New York for the summer and uh, we wrote a couple of songs together. And that ultimately led to Carnegie Hall. Wow. Amazing. You know what's not fair? The fact that Netflix hides thousands of shows and movies from you based upon your location and then has the nerve to increase their prices on you. That's right. They've just raised their prices once again. Now you could just cancel your subscription in protest or you could be smart about it and make sure you're getting your full money's worth by using ExpressVPN like I do. See, you might not know that what's on Netflix in your country is completely different from what's on Netflix in the UK or Japan has on theirs. Using ExpressVPN, I can control which country I want Netflix to think I'm in. ExpressVPN has over 90 countries to choose from, so every time I run out of stuff to watch, I just switch to another country to unlock new shows. And here's the best part. It's not just for Netflix. You can use ExpressVPN to unlock shows on other streaming services, too. I'd like to use it to watch BBC iPlayer. It's free and only available in the UK. ExpressVPN is also super fast and works on your phone, laptop, even smart TVs so you can watch your shows on the big screen with zero buffering. So be smart. Stop paying full price for streaming services and only getting access to a fraction of their content. Get your money's worth at expressvpn.com slash Broadway Radio. Don't forget to use our exclusive links so you can get three months free. That's express, E-X-P-R-E-S-S, V-P-N dot com slash Broadway Radio. Go to expressvpn.com slash Broadway Radio to learn more. And thanks again for ExpressVPN support of Broadway Radio. Um... Uh, about City of Angels, there are two schools of thought about uh, black walls uh, in terms of comedy. Some people think it makes the actors stand out more. Others people say, no, it's too uh, gloomy to have black. But you inherited the black uh, walls from Carrie that, um, at the theater, right. the Virginia Theater. They hadn't repainted them. Um, did you have any misgivings or did you say, oh, this is great that we have black walls? Or did you not give it a thought at all? 
Well, I was, they were rather looming, uh, but I, they came with a theater and it was my first Broadway show and we had a theater. So I was not going to complain mm-hmm. about the walls. I wasn't, mm-hmm. I wasn't about to ask you Jamson to paint the walls. Of that. <laughs> no, no. <laughs> the other question um, involving uh, city of angels that uh, it would seem to me that that um, opening song that um, Stein sings would be an awfully hard thing to put lyrics to um, that's, the melody that really showed up again in Double Talk Walk um, at the end, the greatest ex- music in the history of musical theater. Uh, and I loved Thank how you. your musicians, every time I went, and I went a number of times, how they loved going, ugh, at the end. Yeah. Uh, they really enjoyed <laughs> doing that. But that seems like a terribly difficult thing to put lyrics to. Well, that was that was the challenge that interested me the most. And um, Lambert Hendrickson Ross would take uh, horn licks or horn uh, solos, and then write uh, um, words to that. And this was essentially the same thing. So, so I wrote that music out, and then I set the lyric to that. So it it was challenging, but it was also very satisfying when you, you got it right. Sure. I, I love doing that. In the Goodbye Girl, you have um, the lyric about the Sondheimlich maneuver. Yeah. <laughs> was that something that you had thought about years earlier uh, or something that really came up while you were writing the show? No, it really came up while I was writing the show. And uh-huh. it, the song was so such an odd moment. It's a, a song about, um, an, it's called an improvised love song. And in the, in the film, he improvises a song for her. Or, and uh, so I wrote the song for the character to sing it to her. And, uh, so if my lyrics make you gag, I'll apply the Sondheimlich maneuver just seemed uh, uh, very right for that particular song. That's great. James, I'm sorry I interrupted you. No, no. I was going to ask about Pamela's first musical and, uh, and you know, your work on that uh, was uh, after – uh, so many other really large projects and, it, it, and this is a small musical. So how did you change gears with that? And what was it like uh, to put together something based upon a children's book? Well, that came about um, Wendy had written the book and the, uh, the children's book, and I thought it was charming. And uh, I called her and said, this would make a great TV movie. And she said, well, you know, it's funny you should say that because people had talked to me about that and uh, let's do it. And, uh, and, and of course, her first choice was my first choice, Psy. And so that's how it started out. And it turned out we'd written five songs and um, for some reason, Disney decided not to make it. We'd even gotten, at that point, Meryl Streep said she would be in it, which wow. was the dream for all of us. Sure. And um I, I think Disney didn't, they couldn't make the deal or something on those like that. And uh, so they ended up making Geppetto with Drew Carey instead. Uh-huh. So we liked the project and decided let's make it a theater piece. And, and Disney was incredibly kind and gave us back our show, which was really wow. generous. And so we started over and we incorporated the, those five songs and, uh, but it was not that small a musical, but as you know, getting things on is hard. And uh, we shrank it up a little bit to, to do it regionally. And of course 
it all happened posthumously for Sai and, and Wendy, um, which was a great tragedy. It was it was supposed to start, um, I think, at in Palo Alto, and um, Sai died really suddenly, and mm. about a month before we began. So they postponed it for a year, and then Wendy got ill and uh, died a year later, and the whole thing disappeared. And Graziella. Danielle and I were the, the the surviving part of the team and never gave up. We just wanted this to happen, but uh, it took many years for it to come together. There was a concert version as a benefit for Broadway cares that with starring Donna Murphy, that was uh, I thought really good and an mm-hmm. amazing cast. And I, I thought that might kickstart the show, but it didn't, but out of the, Oh, and then um, there was a wonderful article in, in the New York times by uh by Kara Joy uh, David that mm-hmm. talked about this lost show. And I, that was out of the blue too. her enthusiasm for the show. And I thought that would kickstart the show, but it didn't. And uh, then out of the blue, um, we heard from uh, uh, a, a, an artistic director who had seen, heard about the show and uh, we had pitched it to the public like, 15 years before, maybe 16 years before. And he was very enthusiastic about it and, and decided that he wanted to do it. And that's really how, um, how it came about. Hmm. Uh, you've also um, been very successful at writing uh, songs, uh, you know, for film and television and standalone songs. And you uh, breached the Marvel cinematic universe, the MCU in 2011 <laughs> in the Star Spangled Man, uh, which uh, uh, MCU fans really enjoyed the song, and they just didn't happen to know the uh, the pedigree from uh, Irving Berlin. So, uh-huh. uh, uh, tell us about you know how um, you know those those type of uh, gigs are coming up for you that uh, Disney call, calls up and says, "I need you to write a Captain America song." Well, that was, that was, um, that came out of the blue. Um, I think they may have called Alan and Alan called me and then they were enthusiastic about the two of us. Uh, and, and writing for them was really wild because you get these encrypted, um, emails and you need, you practically have to take a blood test to open the email, which has (laughs) character drawings and, and little bits of the scene and, uh, but it was really fun uh, and w- way ahead of the, of the, it, uh, it, in a musical, uh, um, it mo- in a movie, usually the songs come at the end and they write them after the movie's been made, but this was like an animated feature. So uh, even though it was a one-off in a live action picture, we, we had to do this way in advance and uh, it was, it was a fun experience. And, and of course you're right. Irving Berlin was definitely our uh, uh, ins- inspiration. Uh, tell uh, you know we we've we've talked around your your education here. Uh, your you did your undergraduate at University of Pennsylvania. What did you study in at University of Pennsylvania? History and sociology. So the you were pre law basically there, uh, and then yeah. you did your uh, Harvard Law School. Um, and as you mentioned, you came uh, back during the summer to write some lyrics <laughs> of your Harvard Law School years. Uh, when did you make a break from law uh, to full-time uh, lyricist? Well, I had always intended to take a, a shot at being a lyricist. Mm. It was what I really wanted to do. And so I went to law school 
because I'm a fairly practical person. And <laughs> the idea of making a living as a lyricist just mm-hmm. seemed mm-hmm. pretty in, it, like an insane long shot. But, and I, I didn't want to be a f- promising 50 year old uh, with nothing to show for my efforts. So I went to law school, I got in and, but it was during law school that I continued to write songs. And it was at that, it was my first year of law school that I met Wally Harper. I was very fortunate uh, at the end of that year. Um, well, wait, I, something just occurred to me. And that is the fact that um, I remember going to see a Harvard law school show. They did musicals. Um, right. Did you get involved with any of those? Of course. Did <laughs> you really? One of ours. I did. There was a, the Harkness was where the uh, food pavilion or the food court at Mm -hmm. law school was. And our show was a, was a spoof of Sherlock Holmes called Holmes is where the Hark is. Uh They called it Uh the Hark. Uh, (laughs) Very inside as were most of the jokes in the, in the score. But um, I I did write for the, for the law school review, but I'm not, uh, but I was not on law review. I might add. (laughs) Oh, funny. That's great. Yeah, the one I saw was called Summary Proceedings, and it took place in the summer. So, uh, yeah, I, I had forgotten all about that. But since we were talking about Harvard Law, that uh, that really did um, stoke my memory. <laughs> we uh, we uh, we spoke to Ken Ludwig, uh, who wrote ten- "Lend Me a Tenor" um, uh, a month or so ago, and. Ken also was a Harvard Law graduate who uh, – do you know Ken? I, I've met Ken a few times. I don't really know him. but Okay. Uh, I, I was wondering if you guys – because he's, he's from um, Pennsylvania as well and also uh, uh, went, to, went to Harvard and, and got his law degree just to make sure that everything was going to work out for life. Uh, <laughs> it's a good fallback plan. He was a few uh, years. He was a few years ahead of me at law school. Okay, exactly. So um, I, I, it's just ironic because um, <laughs> I, what, well, what, what, order, what's in- Cold Order went to Yale, and uh, I'm trying to think. Um, Oscar Hammerstein, uh, Cold Porter dropped out after I think six months. Oscar Hammerstein went for a mm-hmm. year. or so, uh, so I always think people's careers are inversely proportionate to how long they stay in law school. <laughs> <laughs> well, I, I'm just wondering what's in the water in Pennsylvania, you know? Because <laughs> <Good> <laughs> uh, some mighty talented people have come out of there. Uh, I, I don't want to uh, have our whole discussion focused on um, City of Angels, but I wanted to ask you one more question uh, about City of Angels was uh, during the during the whole casting process. Were you involved in the casting process? Oh, yes, absolutely. And uh, and you had mentioned that the show was really written before the producers got involved. So did it workshop or what? What was the path of of uh, of that? Uh, we opened cold in New York. Um, we previewed for what was supposed to be two week, two and a half weeks. But we had some technical difficulties, and the show was so big uh, that um, we ended up having to add another week or so to previews, and then we just opened cold. It was, it was scary. And, and and then and then you were involved in the casting process, so you got to see these characters come to come to life in front of you. Really, did as you. As you were working with, uh, you know, a Randy Graff, uh, 
and, and James Naughton, how, did these characters change at all or how did it go? Well, the writing didn't change a lot, uh, but the actors were marvelous, as you mentioned. And uh, um, so, and, and they were pretty great right out of the box. Uh, it was, it, you know, for the first preview, they were very in character, although the show hadn't gelled at that point. In fact, there was one of the things that we learned a big mistake we made. Um, they trying to make the uh, black and white world. And uh, <laughs> for those of you who are listening, who don't know city of angels takes place in, in, in the a mind of a screenwriter in um, technicolor real life. And then you see the screenplay he's writing coming to life in black and white. And so it was double cast so that the actors sometimes were playing people in the screenplay and they, then you would meet the people in real life that inspired those characters. Sometimes it, it, you'd meet them after you saw the character in the screenplay. But in order to, to be clear, and I'm already confusing everyone I can tell, <laughs> um, the, uh, um, we had very – the black and white and grayscale costumes and, um, and color costumes, and we changed wigs for each character. Uh, so that that when they were in black and white, it was a different wig than they were in when they were playing in real life. And what we discovered at that first performance was the audience didn't really know who anyone was, and they didn't realize they were double cast because uh, it, it, they were completely confused. So the next day, we kept the one wig on them for the entire show. And suddenly everyone knew that they were supposed to be seeing the same actor playing two different parts. So there was, we learned a lot in previews. It was uh, quite an experience. Now, um, Ken, uh, Ethan Morton, one uh, writing yes. about Andrew Lloyd Webber once said, he doesn't seem to trust his lyricist to do a second show with him. And yet here you are, you're doing a second show with yeah. him or is it even more than that? Uh, I'm trying to think of other things we've we wrote something for a movie that didn't happen. I see. Uh, we talked about uh, other projects, but this is actually the second show that will be produced. Mm-hmm. So, uh, so that's a nice compliment. And um, we should mention it's <laughs> Cinderella. It's a yes. Cinderella story. C- Cinder- Cinderella coming up uh, because w- we never said the word Cinderella. But your your first show was w- the Woman in White, mm-hmm. uh, and now you you're currently working on Cinderella. Right. <laughs> so, uh, <laughs> what can you tell us, if anything? And if you say I, it's um, it's none of your business, that's perfectly fine too. Oh no, I would tell you that if it weren't. But it's actually it is it is your business. I think. Um, <laughs> It's. I'm very excited about it. Uh, it's. We're writing, working with a, a writer named Emerald Fennell, and she's a miracle. She's an amazing writer and also an amazing person. Uh, she's 30. I think she may have just turned 34 years old. Um, she's had, had last year. She had quite a year. She worked on our show. Uh, she wrote the second season. She had just finished the second wow. season of Killing Eve, and I think she wrote every show of that. Um, she's playing Camilla Parker Bowles in, mm. uh, in the crown. So you can see her if you flick on Netflix and she had a baby and she directed her first wow. feature film that she wrote and produced called promising young woman. And I, and she had the first woman ever to have three golden globe nominations. Wow. And I think on Monday, I would bet that she's going to get at least one or two Oscar nominations. She's really wow. quite remarkable. And, uh, 
Andrew had talked to me years before about doing his version of Cinderella and the way he describes it. Um, he was at a meeting in um, it's his story, but I'll, I'll tell it anyway in Hollywood and um, at a dinner, not a meeting, they were all having dinner and, and discussing great theatrical and, and television events. And someone said, what, what is the most watched event in the history of television? And people were saying the moon landing yeah, yeah. and the, uh, all these sports events, the Super Bowl, and Andrew's waving his hand. He said, I'm the theater nerd in the corner, raising yeah, yeah. his hand. And they called on him and he said, it, it was Rogers and Hammerstein's Cinderella. And everyone said, wow. And then they said, you should write a Cinderella. This is seven or eight years ago. And he just never found the right story. And then Emerald, who is a family friend as well, pitched this really crazy version of Cinderella that captured him and they involved, then they asked me to join them. Uh, and basically it is about, it takes place in Belleville, which is the most beautiful town in Europe in a grim fairy tale year back in the day. And it's a story about a girl who's sort of a goth girl in a town where everyone is freaking gorgeous mm. in a very superficial town. And they uh, mock her for, um, her individuality. She's bad Cinderella is how they refer to her. And, and if you <laughs> go on YouTube and, and you can see, or, or one of your streaming devices, the song bad Cinderella sung by Carrie Hope Fletcher is out there. <laughs> That's really, uh, it's, it's really great to see, uh, the, the new work that is, is still happening in this year of our lost, uh, our lost year of theater. So you continue to work uh, remotely with Andrew or uh, how did, did you go back and forth or how did it work for you? Well, it, it, we had started to talk before we began recording. about yeah. um, mm -hmm. This is the anniversary today of uh, my being in London in, in previews for City of Angels. We, uh, we had done a production of City of Angels at the Donmar uh, five years earlier and with Joseph that Josie Rourke directed and Stephen Meir choreographed and it won the Olivier for best revival. And uh, the intention at the time was to bring it right in, but for a bunch of reasons, casting and theater availability. And it, I, mean, I could go on, but uh, it didn't happen. And, but the producer Nika Burns was determined to make it happen. And finally all the pieces came together and we were in, I don't know, our, 12th or 11th preview on a Saturday, a year ago at the matinee. And I came back to my hotel in between and I turned on CNN and they said that the United States will starting Monday, the mm. two days later was going to stop air traffic from the UK to the United States. So I thought, Oh, gee. And I was over there to work on city of angels, but also the following Monday to start a, a three and a half week workshop of Cinderella. And so I called the producer and I said, I just heard this on the radio. Uh, I think I should come home. And can you get me a ticket for tomorrow, the Sunday? And I know it's, it's Saturday night and your office is probably, no one's there, but could you maybe do that for me? And she said, oh, you can't leave. We're going to open in a week. And it's, uh, you know, I, I think you should stay. And, and wow. are you sure you want to leave? Andrew's going to have a cow if you leave. And and I said, well, look, you, if you get me the ticket, we can always cancel it. I'll call Andrew. So I called Andrew and, but oh, just before I called, I'm going to drop another name here, but one of my close friends is happened and neighbors is Senator 
Barbara Boxer. Hmm. And she called me in London and she said, you get on the next plane. They're not messing around. You come home. Hmm. So I called Andrew and Andrew uh, was incredibly gracious. And and I did drop the senator's name (laughs) with him. (laughs) He said, no, no, my dear boy, you've got to go home. So I left. And the following day was a dark day. And on Monday at five o'clock, the whole West End closed down. And uh, they had done the they they went through the first day of the workshop of uh, Cinderella, but they had the the British government had said that anyone over seventy should not be in a group of more than eight people. So Andrew stayed home and didn't even go to the first day. And at the end of the first day of that workshop, it was shut down. So from there on in, uh, we worked remotely. Um, I was zooming. I was zooming at like. I think nine o'clock in the morning was five o'clock in London. So we would meet and talk things through. And then I would write it overnight and and email everybody what I was working on. And we just worked for like six weeks to tighten the script and to, to, to get to the next stage. We had done a reading, uh, like a, the equivalent of a 29 hour reading about mm-hmm. seven or eight months before. And we'd had a lot of meetings prior to this workshop that we were, that was canceled. So uh, we just continued our work and it was in um, during, I guess, in captivity (laughs) that we, uh, during shutdown that we recorded the CD. And uh, uh, so it's, there's a record of the whole show and they've been leaking or, or putting out um, singles for the last two or three months. There are three out there now. And I think a fourth one coming soon. And then a week, or a month before we actually open, they're going to release the whole record. Wow. That's, that's uh, quite a story. Uh, you were lucky to get out. Uh, lots really of people was. got, lots of people got stuck at Heathrow and uh, Gatwick and things like that. It's like Casablanca. Yeah. <laughs> Miss Saigon, I think. It's like Miss Saigon. Oh, right. I was just going to say the yeah. end of Miss Saigon, you know? <laughs> yeah, that's more apt. No question about it. Um, so do you know anything we don't about uh, theaters reopening in London? You know, I don't really. I I, I can tell you that um, two weeks ago, um, I Andrew had uh, said uh, maybe three weeks ago on a radio show that that we were going to keep to our schedule and open in May. Mm-hmm. Then um, Andrew called me and said uh, we're going to postpone a little bit. And then about two, he was on Good Morning Britain a couple of weeks ago or one of the morning shows, and announced that July first. They're going to open um, Joseph in in London. And July uh, July fourteenth, Cinderella is going to open, and then at the end of the month, Phantom is coming back. And we had and and that we were going into rehearsal, but basically we had a one week or two week uh, workshop again with the actors in London. And uh, I don't know. I mean, the the hope is that we will keep to that schedule. So mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. it seems. You know, I, I'm everyone. No one really knows for sure, uh, but that's the hope. A- Andrew's wishing you were somehow here again. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> um, now, um, when the Good Bye Girl went to London, there were new songs, but you didn't write them, right? I did not. <laughs> Are we leaving it at that? <laughs> no, uh, I'm perfectly happy to talk about it. Um, it was one of those circumstances where. Uh, I was um, working on on uh, Mulan, I think it was ninety, uh, and uh, I 
but I did not agree to that. Uh, I didn't think I was agreeing to that. Um, there, you know what? I actually, it, it was, there were a lot of misunderstandings and I discovered that, um, I, that Don Black, who I have great respect for was writing new songs for it. I was not happy. Um, but, uh, it kind of took care of itself. <laughs> yes, it did. <laughs> I, I was going to ask you about the goodbye girl. Uh, did you work on that? I, uh, at the same time as City of Angels or after City of Angels or how what um, was the timeline for that? That was about a year or two after City of Angels. Okay. So the the time frame to between you know when you were uh decided to work on the Goodbye Girl uh to get uh Goodbye Girl on stage that was only, you know, 2 years or so? Um I think let's see City of Angels opened in in December 89, 89 and mm-hmm. then the Goodbye Girl opened in '93 in, yeah. in February of '93, so it was a couple of years later. Uh, mm-hmm. it, that the Goodbye Girl was my idea. I called Neil Simon. Uh-huh. And said, this would be a great musical, and he liked the idea. And I mean, both of us thought Marvin was perfect. And uh, you know, obviously, they had a relationship, and that was. I, I think I had already written something with Marvin, a, a movie theme song for some. Oh, for. Um, a movie with Michael Palin and, uh, and I can't think of the name of the movie, but it was, that was a, a year or so earlier. And so it, it just worked out. Um, we had a great time writing the show uh, despite what happened about London. And then, and we all kind of made up after that as well. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. Uh, and uh, I guess yesterday or the day before was uh, Liza's 75th. Uh, mm-hmm. party Indeed. and uh, you worked on Liza's at the palace in 2009 uh, with uh, special lyrics by John Kander and, and our friend Billy Stretch uh, so how uh, you know p- pulling these uh, these little things uh, I-, I shouldn't say nothing with Liza is little mm-hmm. but right. <laughs> it was such a joyful experience Um it, it, it happened actually out of the blue because uh, I, I uh, obviously everyone loves Liza and, and Billy and I are friends, but I went to see them in concert and they, this was before um, they had actually put anything together for the Broadway show. And uh, they, but they were doing uh, a Kay Thompson section and they had uh three boys and Billy and Liza doing all these K Thompson arrangements with, and I was, a, was an, am a huge K Thompson fan. And uh, so I went back to see them afterwards and I just talked about how much I love that section of the show and how brilliantly staged it was. And it really, it was dazzling. Uh, Ron Lewis did it and mm-hmm. it was beautifully staged and uh, hugged everybody and went away. And about, uh, two days later, I got a phone call. How'd you like to write our show? Mm-hmm. And I think, and, and Liza told me you, the way you talked about Kay and, you know, the way you reacted to this show made me think you'd be a good collaborator. And so I jumped on the team and it was just so much fun. And uh, I remember it, it, seeing it every night. Uh, it was so um, the, the relationship between Liza and the audience was something like, 
on a level I've almost never seen before. Bette Midler has that kind of relation with an audience, but it was such a superstar moment. And I was going to California. And so I wanted to make sure I went to every performance up until I left town because I thought I will never see anything quite like this again. It it was really special. Wow. And then uh, you wrote, uh, you got together with Alan Menken and and did Hercules, um, which brings you to a whole different uh, level where uh, the projects that you work on become uh, uh, giveaways and tchotchkes at McDonald's. Uh Embedded in the minds of impressionable children. (laughs) Yes. uh, Indeed. It's funny you should say that because – Early on, and uh, back in the day when Disney, this was the absolute peak of Disney's uh, renaissance. And uh, prior to Hercules, they were, you know, the only game in town. And uh, so they were, they pretty much gave the shows carte blanche. I mean, 99 musicians when you needed them. Uh, <laughs> and they would, they would do trips, uh, development trips. And they took us all to Greece and to uh, Turkey to look at Hellenic ruins and, and, and to see what it was like. And it was just a thrilling trip. And we were in uh, Ephesus and uh, the, the room, the Roman um, ruins in Ephesus. And we climbed up this plateau and there was probably, I don't know, maybe 120 Turkish school children with their guides and their teachers. And our guide started talking to their guide. And uh, suddenly they came running and surrounded us. And they were going, Lion King, Lion King, because two of our animators were Lion King animators. And uh, then I realized this is going to be huge. I'm part of this uh, historical event that will be in 27 languages and will be affecting children uh, around the world, so it was it was pretty heady and exciting. It was it was great. I interviewed Jonathan Groff last year uh, for a drama desk event, and he said something to the effect uh, he was talking about Frozen specifically, but it applies to so many of the Disney things. They're so beloved by children at a very impressionable age that he he likened it to religion. Wow. <laughs> <laughs> and it, when you think about it, you know, I mean, it's, it's, it's just, they're, they're so influential and so powerful. But it wasn't your uh, first foray because you worked with Phil Collins on Tarzan. Actually, that was after. And um, that was a brief but happy experience. Uh, Phil, um, originally, they had intended for the characters to sing. Um, and that was when I was involved. And then at some point in the process, they decided that they didn't want the characters to sing, that they wanted it to be a background score that Phil would sing. And so once it was Phil singing in his own voice, uh, and Phil was an accomplished lyricist, it just seemed natural that he would write his own lyrics. So that was so a very brief uh, period in my life. But it was interesting because, as I told you, they were flush at that point. And so they would send me on the Concord to write with him in Switzerland. <laughs> nice. So I was bouncing around. It was it was really it was really exciting. Well, given the fact that uh, Aladdin uh, came to the stage, and so are many other of these animated features have come to the stage. Has there ever been any talk of Hercules? Well, I don't know if you remember, but uh, oh yeah, they did it in the they did it in the park, right? Park, right? We did it at uh, oh, that's um, right, yeah, the public in. Um, at the Delacorte. 
which is really exciting. And so, yeah, absolutely. We're, we're going to take that version, which was done um, with 250 uh, local yeah. community members and I think six or seven uh, equity actors uh, and, and then write a, a producible version of it with, you know, without 250 people in it. Um, <laughs> that's what we're, we we're working on. And, and that's been slowed down a little bit by, um, by COVID a lot by COVID. We were hoping to do it this summer. Uh, the goal will be maybe to do it next summer somewhere. Uh, I, I'm not sure that they're looking at Broadway, uh, but we want to do a, a, a stage version of it so that it can be done. 250 uh, member cast in socially <laughs> distanced. You could do it in giant stadium, you know, right. <laughs> just about it. Well, David, I want to thank you so much for joining us on Broadway radio. We really appreciate it. Um, uh, who knows <laughs> when the schedule is going to return either on the West End or in uh, on Broadway and uh, when you'll be able to travel freely around the world because I guess you're going to have to head back to London soon to uh, keep working on Cinderella. I look forward to that and I enjoyed talking with you gentlemen and look forward to all actually being in the same room together again at some point maybe even without masks. I, I, I hadn't intended upon uh, the discussion to be so focused on City of Angels, but it is just one of my favorite shows. Oh, and absolutely! Just, and uh, and I was sitting here, you know, really just being more of a fan than mm-hmm. producing this show. <laughs> that I I was like, oh, we I, I need to move that forward. But uh, I'm really glad that David was able to uh, chat with us in such depth. Uh, there, it's really yeah. Wonderful. Please check out those two videos of "You're Nothing Without Me" that I sent because I think they're in their in their way. They're both phenomenal. It, it it's hard to conceive. Uh, uh, to City of Angels was ninety three. What did he just say? No, it was no, eighty nine. Eighty nine. So eighty nine. Uh, he was just out of out of college. That's just it's just an amazing, yes, amazing piece of work. It's really wonderful. So, um, Peter and Michael, uh, a little birdie told me that you saw a show last Monday. Yes, we were in the same audience for the first time in, I guess, a year, wouldn't you say, Michael? It would have yes. to be. Yes, we're sir. often in the same audience, but uh, not lately. <laughs> yeah, lately. <laughs> so, uh, yeah, really, um, the first play I thought was really, really uh, terrifically done. Um, it, uh, from, uh, it was a parody of The Glass Menagerie written by Christopher Durang and uh, for whom the Southern bells toll. And um, it, uh, it was part of Durang Durang at the Manhattan theater club many moons ago and uh, great fun to see, but more to the point, I thought it was wonderfully performed. Yes. That young man who played uh, essentially Laura. Jeremy um, Beck. He is so fantastic. Wasn't he great? I think I, mean, I mentioned him last week. He's been in several of the Mint shows. Uh-huh. He is just the greatest. It was so great to see him on stage again. 
Well, he doesn't collect glass animals, this character. No, <laughs> Lawrence doesn't. Um, what he co- collects are swizzle sticks. Uh, and um, <laughs> especially with this one called Q-tip. And it's so funny later when he complains to his mother that uh, what happened to Q-tip. I mean, the way he says, and she did blah, blah, blah with Q-tip, you know, and uh, expecting the mother to know which one is Q-tip and all that. I mean, really. Um, but. But also what was really wonderful is that the gentleman caller was uh, not a gentleman caller at all, but was uh, a female caller and um, tremendous performance um, by a woman whose last name is Hope. Do you remember her first name, um, Michael? No, I was, I'm sorry. I didn't call up the, the cast list here. Yeah, I, yeah, I, she I, was. She was terrific. You got to have hope in your show. I tell you, you know, because she was really, really quite wonderful. They all were. They really were. Everybody was sensational. And um, it was so much fun to see. And what's also, let me point out, um, I've gone to these Susan Charlotte shows during these times. And um, this was the biggest house she ever had. And she mentioned that, too. So word is getting out there that you can go to Theater 80 St. Mark's when she does a show and uh, she'd be glad to have you. And um, I was, I had to leave very quickly after the second play, which I'll, I'll let Michael tell you about. Um, But um, he'll also have to tell you about uh, what happened afterwards because I I wasn't able to stay. So Michael, what was the second show? Well, the second uh, show was, was a, a comedic, very brief play by Tennessee Williams called Lifeboat Drill, which I have to say, um, you know, people people have always said, and I, I've been one of those people, I wish that uh, Williams had maybe written some more outright comedies. But having seen this, um, we think maybe that maybe that was not such a good idea. <laughs> it, it was not. It was not a great play. But um, it but I uh, have but it Bob Dishy was in it. <laughs> Uh, and so uh, just to see him on stage was was really kind of incredible and his, uh, playing opposite his wife um it it was it was definitely um the more negligible negligible part of the afternoon but for whom the southern bell tolls we we discussed it a little bit last week by christopher durang is uh is truly hilarious and the entire cast as peter said was was just fantastic uh blanche baker um uh, who was uh, played the the equivalent of the Amanda Wingfield character, and um, Blanche's mother, Carol Baker, was part of the uh, the post show event. She was on. Uh, she joined us by Zoom or whatever on on a. Uh, they just had a little laptop set up, uh, and so it was not technically the the most the most elaborate show you you've ever seen in your life but it was incredible to have her and she was interviewed by foster hirsch um and then uh very happily chris chris durang uh, and his partner john they they made an appearance um so it was wonderful to see them and hear from them briefly also it was great for me to be um uh, in theater 80 st mark's which is quite a historic theater um mm-hmm. you know on, on several levels uh cited the original production of you're a good man charlie brown uh was a movie theater for many years and what what other shows started there peter well also um the pearl theater company was there for a while and oh, yes. um yeah and um and that was really quite nice when that happened too so uh and it's a theater company I miss because they really uh, dug deep and found um, so many interesting things to do. Plays that 
like A Taste of Honey or um, uh, Toys in the Attic, uh, Lillian Hellman play, plays were well regarded in their time, but you don't see anymore. So they, I really miss them. But uh, so I would, that's when I went more than anything else. But when I arrived in New York, yes, it was a movie theater. And I did, and this, of course, before even um, VHS tapes. So if you want to see these old movies from way back when, this was a place to do it. I mean, I'm not saying it was the only place, of course, but it was a place to do it. And um, so I remember the double bill of uh, Judy Holiday movies, um, the uh, obscure ones, really, not not like the song right. Cadillac of Bells Ringing, but P-H-F-F-T is actually the name <laughs> of the movie, and uh, The Marion Kind. So, you know, I, it, was, it was a very valuable place, and I, I spent a lot of time there, both as a movie theater and as a legitimate theater. So, um, but it's, it, and they've... Um, I will say the theater was in a bit of disrepair the last time I went and they solved the issue. So I was very glad to see that. Um, so, uh, so I'm, I, I, I love these Susan Charlotte shows. I really do. I think it's really wonderful that she uh, makes them happen. Um, so many people say, well, what's the use? Why bother all that? She bothers, she cares, she produces. It was a wonderful, wonderful event. I was very, very glad that I went. All right. So uh, that is really great to hear that Susan Charlotte is still uh, doing uh, shows. And, you know, we were talking a little bit before we started recording uh, this evening and talking about how uh, all of a sudden in the last week or so, it it feels like uh, Broadway is is. Being more positive that we're, we're going to be seeing Broadway shows, and I think that we're going to hear an announcement from the Broadway League this week about some future plans and maybe something about the Tony Awards uh, and when we'll reopen and things like that. So that'll be I wonderful. I mentioned I had to walk through Times Square today, and it was quite quite busy. But also, I, I walked by the theater where Company was about to open, and mm-hmm. <laughs> um, there's a, a, a one of the large posters up front is uh, uh, of Patty Lapone in character and someone uh, some jokester had taken you know those google eye things mm-hmm. Uh, mm-hmm. they had taken them uh, two of them and put them over her eyes <laughs> which you know I don't I don't I uh, cotton to vandalism like that but but i guess i don't know maybe during a pandemic it's it's so right <laughs> i had a friend who hated barnum so much that he used to scrawl on all the posters save your money don't see this show and, <laughs> and jerry schoenfeld caught him caught him <laughs> and even though it wasn't a schubert show <laughs> he gave him hell <laughs> well i don't know if they're, they're going to catch this person but i thought it, uh, i mean i it, it was quite amusing when I walked by and I noticed it. And, and then I thought uh, maybe that's how Patty Lapone looks when she's looking at Sherry Renee Scott. Oh, uh, <laughs> 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 well, I tell you, I'd feel bad for the person who did that if Patty caught them. Yes, exactly. Mm. I had that thought all mm. <laughs> So uh, let's uh, move into our trivia. Peter, do you have an answer for last week's trivia? The question was, what was the last Broadway musical to be made into a black and white film? And um, some people gave TV shows, uh, TV specials that certainly were in black and white, but they weren't on film. Those things were done live and uh, they were kinescoped, but it's not the same thing. And a lot uh, of them were originally in color and have been lost in color. Yeah, 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 that's true, too. 
Um, I, uh, by the way, I'm not 1000% sure I'm right about this, but uh, from the research I did, I did come up with an answer. And I'd say that it happened in 1948, when in fact, four film versions of Broadway musicals were released. One was Are You With It? which had been a moderately successful 1945 musical. It it ran seven months and uh, it never shows up anywhere, Uh, but it was done. Donald O'Connor was in the movie. In fact, that opened in March of 48, but nobody gave that as an answer. Up in Central Park, which had been a very successful 1945 musical, opened in July. And that was Joanna Abizi's answer. Ah, but in August of 1948, came the filmed version of the 1943 Broadway musical Smash, One Touch of Venus. Mm. That was Tony Janicki's answer. Ah, but in December of 1948 came Mexican Hayride. Without songs, I'll grant you, but it was the film of a Broadway musical. So that's our answer. And Steve Bell was the only one to get it. This (laughs) week's question. I'm looking for the name of a musical from the 70s that won many Tonys. I'm also looking for the name of a musical from the 50s that won no Tonys at all. That Tony loser, however, has had more revivals than the Tony winner. But to be fair, it did have that substantial head start. In fact, it even had its first Broadway revival before the Tony winner even had its tryout. However, you're telling me the name of the two musicals is not enough. It's not enough. I want you also to tell me the name of the person who is mentioned in a song in each of these two musicals. Okay. If you have an answer for that, email us at trivia at broadwayradio.com. We'll let you know if you're on the right track. So, Michael, uh, tell us what's in the musical moment this week. Well, our musical moment this week is a tribute to three great artists, Barbara Cook, Wally Harper, and David Zippel, Mm. because it is, in fact, the song that was mentioned earlier, It's Better With a Band, which David confirmed, uh, I I thought was the case, was written expressly for Barbara Cook by uh, Wally Harper Music and David Zippel Lyrics, and it was written for a a concert that she did in 1980 at Carnegie Hall. And Carnegie Hall is is mentioned in the lyric. Um, it's also it's a great melody. It's a great lyric, uh, as you would imagine, from those two gentlemen. And it's got a, one of the best lyrics in it. I really love this one. Um, Barbara sings at one point, uh, 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 what a thrill to share the stage with great musicians. I feel just like a rabbit in the company of great magicians. Uh And so I think that's typical, (laughs) wonderful David Zippel. And there's Mm -hmm. a lot of that in it. So please enjoy. It's better with a band as this week's musical moment. Okay. So that wraps it up for today. On behalf of Michael Portantier and Peter Felicia, this is James Marino saying thanks so much for listening to Broadway Radio's This Week on Broadway. Bye-bye. Bye. Bye. That's a perfect place to start Then add a drummer with rhythm And you're sure to reach my heart
tea. How well the banjo with southern fried as chicken fricassee. That's vanilla, and if I really have to, I can sing it a cappella. <laughs> <laughs> 